space castle. We're here to make you think about death and get sad and stuff. One, two, three, four. Welcome back to Space Castle. It's your clubhouse nerds for all things nerdy. My name is DT, and I'm 24 years old. <laughs> My name is Alex, and for this episode, I'm Sean Bean. Uh, and I'm Seth, and I'm not really part of space time anymore, so. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, Game of Thrones just kicked off again on HBO with The House of the Dragon, which got me thinking about the original series. Haven't seen it? Uh, it's off to a start. <laughs> <laughs> it has started. There's four episodes. That's generous of I, you. <laughs> the jury is still out. Uh, the thing is, there's plenty of you know requisite boobies. There's not a whole lot of death just yet, which the show is mainly famous for. And that got me thinking about how the first season of the first series on HBO, the original Game of Thrones, really kind of kicked things off with a bang. Like there was a lot of like beheadings and death and boobies and all kinds of stuff. And the first season culminates in the death of a major character that, unless you've read the books, you really didn't see coming. And it's shocking. And it ends up actually informing the whole rest of the season because Sean Bean is such a good fucking actor that his echo just lasts through the next eight seasons of the show before it ends. And that got me thinking. I did a lot of Inception-style thinking here about how the use of death in all all types of media, like movies and TV shows and books, is so prevalent and how it could be super, super poignant and directional for the plot. And sometimes it just feels like a cheap ploy to like pull emotions out of the audience and, and it just it just feels cheap. So I want to talk about that. I want to get sad and talk about death and stuff. I want to talk about the impact that deaths have on our favorite stories. And I also want to talk about character deaths that are just like, what the fuck are they thinking and why are they doing that? Lucky for you, man, getting sad and thinking about death and stuff is like my brand. The so, philosopher is on <laughs> right now. Let's go. Let's, He's ready. Let's do it. <laughs> Finally, an episode I could participate in. <laughs> you shouldn't have to give a disclaimer, but there should be a general like, we're going to talk about a lot of media, books, movies, and TV, and otherwise that involve death, as particularly of major characters. And if that's not your bag, this might not be the episode for you. Yep. So here's here's what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to at least try to mention the thing like the media, the movie or whatever, as I start to talk about it. So if you haven't read it, you can make, oh, let me skip ahead 30 seconds or whatever. OK, let's say this. Let's not talk about anything brand new. We're not going to talk about any deaths in House of the Dragon. We're not ta- going to talk about any deaths in Andor or anything that's recent. I'm talking like classic deaths that had some sort of impact whether it was you actually being coming more invested in the story because that was such a beloved character and the death actually meant something to the story. Or if it's like fucking The Walking Dead where a new character dies every week and you're like, oh, cool. It's like a novelty type thing. So no, no brand new spoilers. And for anything that is spoiled in this episode, if you haven't gone and watched it or read it or listened to it or whatever, what are you fucking doing here? <laughs> Go do that. <laughs> I feel like there's so much nonsense with poorly written things where dramatic irony is like oh you know that the main character is still alive but everybody thinks they're dead and that is so cheap but i think the things that stick out to me are the ones where they're like this is a character that actually died they're like fully actually dead and you're gonna move on from that in my opinion if you're looking at it from a critical standpoint you've got the ones that are there for thematic potency you have the ones that are there for narrative tension from the theme perspective it's like your books that are like Charlotte's Web, because that's the whole point of the book at the end. Like the spider's going to die because it's Charlotte, spoilers, is going to die. Okay, I need to go back on that whole spoiler thing again because God fucking damn it, Alec. I'm kidding. I know, I know, right? <laughs> but then, and Great Gatsby is another one. Mm. Classic American novel. At the end, guess what? Representative of hope, Mr. J. Gatsby does bite the bullet, literally. So, yeah. And that's for thematic potency. It's like for you to understand what's going on in the message of the book or the message of the narrative. And then there are others that are for narrative tension where you get things like Sherlock Holmes, where Sherlock disappears. Or, and this is a big time spoiler, but the one that sticks out to me beyond any other, the one that had me shaking in my boots when I was watching this for the first time 
was The Departed. I was going to mention The Departed, you fuck. <laughs> the Departed was the first time where I was watching a movie and the main character just like fully got his brains blown out. And I was like, my hands dropped, my, my head went back into my theater seat and I was like, huh? <laughs> Another one that shocked a lot of people was uh, Llewellyn when he gets killed in uh, No Country for Old Men. A lot of people who read the book and saw the movie were pissed off because they were heavily invested in that character. And they didn't realize that Ed Tom Bell is the main character, not Llewellyn. So a lot of people missed that. And I think that's one of the trickier, but I think one of the more clever and poignant character deaths in any medium is that character's death because you realize that this wasn't about a cat and mouse game you know, between you know, Anton Chigurh and Llewellyn. It was about the fact that you've got this old about-to-retire sheriff and the world has become so corrupted and terrible and evil, and it's just outside his realm of, of reckoning. Like He's just not made for it anymore. And hence the title, No Country for Old Men. It's just not built for him anymore. It's too fucking twisted for his classic sensibilities. I thought the movie was fucking incredible. I've written papers on it in film school. Everything from the acting to the pacing to the sound design is just goddamn fucking flawless. It's one of the Coen brothers' best. But people in the movie theater were angry. When that scene came up where you just see him in the ground in the hotel room mm -hmm. and it's just brushed away. It's not a major plot point, despite the fact that it is. But yeah, it's, it, that's one of those things like what you were saying about The Departed. It's shock value, but it's also establishing the boundaries for the world in which the story is being told. Everybody's like, expendable. Everybody can be killed at any point and in any time, which is different than The Walking Dead, where it becomes like a flavor of the week, like who's going to die. And it's not because you're engaged or emotionally attached to those characters. You just want to see some fucking misery porn. And I fucking hate The Walking Dead for that reason, because that's all it is, is misery porn. It gets to the point where you just become desensitized to the death. And I think it probably went a long ways toward desensitizing a lot of people to death in media in general, because I don't know, if I was a writer and I was working professionally in Hollywood and The Walking Dead came out and they were just throwing around character deaths all willy-nilly like it didn't fucking matter, that's one very poignant and important writer's tool that's been grossly diluted for everybody, I think. Well, that's what's so amazing about The Departed. I remember watching that and No Country for Old Men. And you could tell the people that I was watching it with, you could tell who like watched a lot of movies or was like really interested in the actual narrative as opposed to I'm watching a movie and eating popcorn or whatever, because they were like, whoa, this is interesting and this is phenomenal or whatever. The Departed, it's a masterclass in how to kill off a main character because the tension is so heavy there and this is the the second part of what i was saying is the, the narrative tension like there's literal elevator going back and forth between different segments of this story and people who follow along closely will recognize that matt damon is really the main character of the departed and it follows his narrative arc but it also follows dicaprio's arc through the middle and you start to like forget about what's going on with damon even though he's there the entire time because it's more dramatically driven by DiCaprio's work. It, it mirrors Gatsby in that way. Absolutely. Yeah, you're meant to, you're meant to think about Gatsby and, and when in reality it's Nick Carraway's story and he bookends it. Yeah, and The Departed, it's like, holy shit. And that's the one that sticks with me. Like immediately when this topic came up, it was like, I can't not talk about this because it was the one that just threw me for a loop and showed me what value there is in doing this. Because it completely throws out everything. It's like, oh, well, you want to root for the good guy in this. And he's done his work in reality. He's done his work. And it's excellent from a thriller standpoint, too, because of that. Because he's, he's already done it. Just like in The Happening. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, fuck <laughs> no, 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 no. You can't. I'm just kidding. If you're subscribed to this podcast, you've not seen The Departed. I will find you and I will unsubscribe you. <laughs> <laughs> Show up in their house and like, okay, click unsubscribe. Yep. <laughs> uh, there are other movies where it's important narrative tension wise. Like The Godfather is, is another great example because you can't have a Michael Corleone who who steps into this role without Marlon Brando kind of disappearing and fading into the background a little bit. You have to have that happen, which is why we get two of the most poignant and arguably best movies ever made. You know, you kind of need that to happen. You need your main character to kind of like step aside. And people argue at this. People, I've seen it online, even recently. 
like, well, what what if we had more Brando in that movie? What if we had a little bit more of like The Godfather? And then I don't think so. You need death of your main characters to to inform plot points like in Avatar. This time, for the first time, I don't mean The Last Airbender. I mean Avatar, the James Cameron film, Fern Gully Pocahontas. Last of the Mohicans. Yes. The tale as old as time. <laughs> because Sam Worthington's character dies, essentially, and is brought back, but it has narrative potency later on because Sigourney Weaver's character is meant to be resurrected in the end and cannot be. So it's informative to the entire narrative arc of the film. I think... James Cameron's Avatar doesn't get enough credit for things like that. Mm. I think that yeah, it, it I think the here's the highest grossing film of all time, but it gets shit on all the time. Here, this is and, and I'm gonna land right. All three of us talk at the same time. <laughs> got a lot to say. <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. <laughs> I was gonna say here's where I land between DT and Seth, and I'm gonna say I think that it is not as bad as people say it is but it's still not great. So when you look at Rings of Power, for instance, a lot of people are being like, oh, terrible, but visually stunning, which is the same thing that I heard about Avatar when it first came out. Wow, what a wonderful, amazing masterpiece of a visual film. But it's word for word Pocahontas with some some names kind of black stamped over. I remember shitting on it pretty hard for being Pocahontas. I remember seeing the scripts side by side and being really blown away by how similar they were. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, it's really fucking boring. <laughs> and it's long and it's dramatic, but I, I remember really enjoying Avatar when I first watched it. And since then, it's still a visual spectacle. It still holds up. I can't say the same thing about Rings of Power. Like, if you were to say... Have you seen Rings of Power? I've seen the first few episodes. And, and if you were to tell me... Would you be interested in going to watch those again right now? I'd be like, nah. I thought about doing a side quest episode on Rings of Power. We're getting off topic, but I thought about doing a side quest episode of Rings of Power. I just can't bring myself to talk about it because I don't have anything good to say aside from the fact that it's gorgeous. It is, I think, a terrible, very, very pretty misfire on all fronts. I'm with DT on this one. It's not, it's not landing for me. But anyway... It's beside my point. I th- I I brought up Avatar just to point out the whole like narrative death. Like Sam Worthington's character dies essentially, and is and is brought back to do something that is justified by the narrative, and that's where it departs from a lot of sort of other similar scripts, and then it, it informs a later plot point, and that's that's interesting. That's cool. Like sometimes you need a main character that that dies. The best example still is, is for me, The Departed, because sometimes it's sort of cheap. Like Guy Ritchie's movies of Sherlock, for as much as I love those, it's sort of cheap because Downey takes a tumble down with Moriarty on a waterfall, and then you're like, ah, he's totally alive. Yeah. He's totally fine, because he's wicked smart, and sure enough. It's not plot armor, but it's close. I love very few things less than an obvious fake plot point it happens a lot though like there is a there's a fake out death for aragorn in the two towers yeah and it's the cheesiest thing because he's fucking aragorn but they're like oh if he went over the cliff with the war and like everybody's sad and depressed and like even legolas thinks he's dead and like it's this big heroic return where he comes back to helm's deep and they reunite and they, they settle their differences and they feel good about everything again and i'm like that's because of gandalf it, it's a mirror to gandalf no nah, dude no no the entire purpose of that was to build up the dramatic tension between him and Eowyn. Yeah. Because they had to have this weird love triangle. And that's the problem with so many Hollywood people. They're like, we have to have a love triangle in here. And in the books, Aragorn is very straightforward. He never has apprehension about becoming the king of Gondor. He never has apprehension about getting away from his ranger background. He he jumps into being, I'm a captain of these people However, I have this ranger background, so I'm going to use it and make sure that these people get to where they need to go. That's Aragorn. In the movies, they're like, well, we need like Arwen to be really dramatically relevant. So there's this thing called the Eldar and the light of the Eldar. And and we're going to have Mordor have an influence on the elves and they're all being corrupted by it. And that's being pushed onto Rings of Power. And before this becomes a Rings of, Rings of Power <laughs> podcast, let me just stop there. 
because I'll ramble on it for a long time, but it doesn't, it doesn't need to be there. Like here, talk about a, a dramatically poignant death, Boromir. That's an excellent, excellent example of a poignant death that drives the plot along and unifies the characters that journeyed with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you get the entire thematic arc represented within Boromir. He shows up to do good. He fails and falls. He repents. And then he sacrifices himself and dies as a member of the fellowship. All within like 30 minutes of the film. It's amazing. And like 400 pages of the book. <laughs> and 400 pages of the book, yes. And it also, what it does is it encapsulates the, the power and the evil of the ring and what can happen to people. And you become more afraid for Frodo because you just saw what happened with Boromir. You understand what the ring is capable of doing to these characters. And it's a miracle that Frodo was so resilient to it because we learned that nobody else could have done what Frodo did. Like Boromir and every actually held the ring, aside from that one moment where he picked it up by the chain on Caradhras. No, it's it's brilliant writing. And that's what I'm talking about. Is I love the fact that a strong character death, whether it's Sean Bean or <laughs> any other actor, when it resonates through the entire rest of the plot, the through line for the rest of the story you're telling, and that death resonates with the characters and affects them and who they become as they go on that journey, that's what it should be. It shouldn't just be for cheap thrills or just to get the audience all riled up or like a jump scare or something like that. It should be poignant. But on the other side... You've got Slasher Fix, which I fucking love, and it's almost Halloween time, and I'm going to watch like a hundred of them, where all the deaths are the draw, but it's in a different context where that's where the entertainment comes from. Like Halloween is cool because of how Michael Myers is such a weird calculating like artist in his murderous spree, if you'll excuse the turn of phrase, but it, it, the kills are the, the drawing point. It's fun. It's interesting. It's, it's spooky and scary and gross and... I guess it all just depends on context, really. It's all audience expectations, man. Maybe, yeah. I mean, my favorite example of that, if you're going to bring up slasher films as an example, is Cabin in the Woods. Mm. Because it's a masterclass in understanding how slasher films work because it pokes fun at them. Like, that's the entire point of it, is that that some people watched Evil Dead way too many times and they were like, I'm going to make a movie like this, (laughs) except we're going to kind of talk about the language of cinema when it comes to slasher films. And then they made Cabin in the Woods, which is just incredible. Well, before that, they made Scream. And Scream was incredible, too. Like, that was literally Wes Craven tearing apart Wes Craven and dissecting it and having a laugh with the audience over it. It was brilliant. But again, the deaths in both of those movies that we just... The one you mentioned, Cabin in the Woods, so when I'm bringing up Scream, is the fact that those deaths are poignant in that they're part of the chemistry and the the skeleton, if you'll, again, pardon the term phrase, <laughs> for those types of movies. And I guess that's the difference for me is like, for The Walking Dead, it loses its potency because it's just happening two or three times an episode. It's like, oh, who's going to die this week? Oh, that guy fucking died. Okay, we didn't really care about him anyway because we don't care about anybody. But with slasher movies, like you said earlier in the podcast, Alex, it's about building tension. And deaths in slasher movies are entertaining because you get that visceral fear, but it's also building up the tension of showing what this horrible monster bad guy can do, and you become even more afraid for the main character that you actually care about. So it's sort of a flip side to what happened with Boromir and the characters in The Departed, where those characters have a poignant effect on the other characters. And in turn, in slasher movies, every death builds up the tension and makes you care more for the main character because you want them to somehow survive this horrible thing that's occurring i like slasher movies we should talk more about horror movies in this podcast <laughs> well it's i mean it's a point of because you've you got diehard horror fans but then you've also got people who just watch thriller movies and think that they're horror movies yeah they're not there's a hard kind of uh difference between the two of those but i think about films where you just don't expect it at all and that's why the departed stuck out to me but i remember watching the original red dawn which is a movie that I really enjoyed. The OG Wolverines, Red Dawn. Yeah, Patrick Swayze, man. Yeah. I mean, everybody and their brother was in it. Then there was a remake of that. Did you ever watch the remake? With Hemsworth? Chris Hemsworth was in it. Josh Peck was in it. Hutcherson was in it. Did you say Josh Peck? Yeah, from Drake and Josh. Yeah. Wow. It was in his resurgence. And he plays, uh, I think, Charlie Sheen's character from the original. So he plays like the younger brother of Patrick Swayze, which is in this film, Chris Hemsworth, who is is not a retired high school football like 
all-star jock all-american and instead is like a marine who comes back in the pacific northwest and then they're invaded by north korea at the end of the film though chris hemsworth takes a bullet to the dome he dies and in the red dawn original like they all pretty much die like that's just the point of the film is this little insurgent band of people in montana of all places decided to put up a fight against the invaders and did a pretty good job of it And now it's a little bit more realistic because they're on the coast, which would be an actual point of ingress for invaders or whatever. But he full on dies like right at the end. And they're trying to get out of this place. And Josh Peck is then going to lead the revolution, which is anyway, he takes a bullet to the dome and it's random. This entire time we're falling in love with Chris Hemsworth as the leader of this ragtag band. And then right at the end, boom, done. Yeah. And I think that was the poignancy and the point of the film was like, yeah, if you're going to be an insurgent, you could you could proper die. You could full on proper die. War is hell. Yeah. Because otherwise <laughs> it was like, a oh, we're a rebel insurrection group and this is Star Wars. No, it's not. Oh, my God. He's dead. <laughs> Seth, you've been awfully quiet. Think about death. You got some thoughts? I like movies and stories that bookend death. Like, for example, actually, the Marvel movies are great for this. Okay. Marvel movies use death as their bookends really, really well. And, you know, there, there's none more poignant than Tony Stark, right? Spoiler alert for Endgame, if you're one of the eight people on Earth that hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> when Tony Stark dies, not only is it poignant and important, and it's the climax of the movie, really. It's climax of 25 movies, to be honest. It has this, like, this moment where Tony Stark's arc not his reactor, his story arc, is <laughs> in effect. God damn it. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so his arc is is basically the arc of, of the Marvel movies, right? It's like the movies are, are Tony Stark. What I really like about what they did is they bookended his story with death. The first part of the first movie is like he should have died, supposed to die. He was dying and he didn't. And the entire rest of the 2,500 movies that they made was just basically him eventually getting to the point where he dies. Hmm. I mean, his story arc is such that, like, went from him dying not at all on his terms to him dying exclusively on his terms. It's good. It's a, it's a good breakdown that I'll probably save for another episode because I think about it a lot. That's really poignant, and it almost kind of makes me like Endgame a little bit. Whoa, <laughs> you've done it, Seth. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh, the feeling's passed. Okay. Oh, uh, there it goes. <laughs> I'll take it. Iron Man 1, I still think out of the 20, what is it, 22, 25 movies, something like that in between. Whatever it is, it's still one of my favorites. It's the very first Iron Man movie. It holds up, too, still. Terrence Howard, you dumb bastard <laughs> what were you thinking <laughs> jesus set aside your ego become a part of something bigger than yourself jesus and i thought for sure captain america is going to bite the bullet in the end and i thought it was going to be him and i was thought it was going to be potentially thor too and they had teased it the whole way and i think that was my issue is that i didn't think about it and then looking back when i watch endgame again i'm like oh this is so fucking obvious <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's so clear <laughs> but the first time i saw it no it was clear it, it the first time i was like oh it's clearly gonna like oh they're teeing up they're teeing up cap they're teeing up thor like they're all everything's collapsing for them they don't have anything else and then wham tony and it just hits so much more dramatically you know what else i like i like movies that take place almost entirely in the aftermath take up for example that movie starts with me crying what i would say the cliff notes version of a life which is fascinating and that's a good way to start a movie and then it ends spoiler alert uh, about 12 minutes into the film with me crying ellie dying of cancer the film takes place in the aftermath of that death and he's a crotchety old man and he's just his grief robs him of his personhood is what it comes down to and I really like movies that use death like that because it's rare that like media portrays the aftermath of a catastrophe well. It happens a lot more in books than it does in like TV or movies because it's not exciting. 
the aftermath of catastrophe, your grief, your rebuilding, your settling, it's not exciting, it's not dramatic, but it's really interesting. The reason I like Up so much is because it's a movie that takes place in the aftermath. I love when death happens first in a story because it doesn't happen often and it's always interesting. That's why you get a lot of movies that are built around birth, marriage, death. How often do you see what happens after the death happens? Not much. No. Even with uh, Game of Thrones, when, when Ned Stark gets beheaded, it effectively cuts away to like a time skip. You don't get any of the aftermath. You get like how that ripples out through, you know, the next five or six years of the world. But that immediate aftermath of like what happens is rare. It's true. Well, I've heard people describe the sequence that you just mentioned in Up as like one of the most poignant 30 second to 45 second clips in cinema history. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I remembered it and then I watched it again and I was like, holy shit, you're not wrong. Like, it's very, very poignant. It hits every single point on your subject and what you're talking about. I wrote off action movies for this reason and I wrote off John Wick before I ever saw it. And then DT was like, we were sitting at SBC and he was like, hey, have you seen John Wick? And I was like, oh, no, I didn't really care to. I then at this time, I had plenty of time to be watching new movies. And he, and he was like, yeah, you're, you need to go, like, whatever you're doing after this, go home and watch John Wick. And I watched it and I was like, oh, shit. But this, this is my point, though, because John Wick is just like, up. Oh, it's a movie that's built on how somebody handles their grief. Takes place in the aftermath, man. Yeah, it's the aftermath. And it's so poignant. Yeah, John Wick is... Very, very good example as well. You want to talk about dramatic tension in a movie that relies on it. John Wick is the example because you can't have that scene in the middle where he's talking about who Baba Yaga is and you can't have the like inherent fear that you're supposed to feel without understanding. And it's so well edited where he's just like sledgehammering the concrete. (laughs) He will kill you with the pencil. With the pencil. <laughs> you know what I really love about, about John Wick is it does both. John Wick does both things where you get the uh, traditional reaction to death in an action movie, right? It's like, uh, I forget the character's name, the, the kid's son who, who kills the dog. And Theon Greyjoy. The... <laughs> yeah, I, I forget the actual <laughs> character's name. But he like does what you expect in an action movie, right? He fucks this, this guy's dog up. And he's like, yeah, it does this whole thing. And then the movie like moves on and he's moved on. He's like, yeah, who cares? I've killed lots of things and I've killed lots of people. Like big deal. This guy will fade into the ether like all the rest. But then that scene where he's explaining Bobby, Yawa, you get that like light switch moment where it's like, oh, this is not the aftermath of this event that we thought it was. And I love that. I love that switch. Yeah, it's a different person that you're dealing with, but it's not. Yeah, I'm just now realizing that like the the first bit of John Wick kind of mirrors the first bit of Up in that. Yeah, totally. The main character is who he is because he's grieving over the loss of his spouse, and the puppy was like a coping mechanism and something he needed to latch onto to deal with his grief. And then losing that puppy too just sends him over the edge, and he's thinking he's back. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's another really good example of, of a, a death being the inciting factor and actually driving the characters forward and establishing who they are as we know them as the story progresses. And that's what's so interesting about John Wick, because there's so much lore. Like they took this concept that was like, oh, no, it's not OK that you killed his dog. We're not going to forget about this. And then they went and showed you all this cool lore that was built into the backbone of this story. And it made it feel very graphic novel, made it feel very like rich. They take the, the runtime to, to show you that he actually can't go live in Jamaica and sit my ties. Like he just, he just can't do that. Yeah. That's just not how he's built. Yeah. His last little bit of humanity that he was granted by his wife and his puppy was ripped away from him and he's just back to being a killing machine. That's, yeah. Yeah. John Wick is a good film. If you uh, were like Alex initially and wrote it off as like just the run of the mill gun for action movie, don't go watch it the trilogy as a whole they're very good legitimately good plus it's more keanu reeves man like what what fucking excuse do you need 
<laughs> yeah, and it was another renaissance for him too, like The Matrix was. It's like, oh, Keanu Reeves is going to be the star of a like a gun kata action spy thriller movie, whatever. Fuck off. And then everybody saw the movie and they were like, holy fuck, Keanu Reeves is the star of like a gun kata, like fucking gun fu, fucking martial arts spy movie. Like, yeah, no, it was fucking amazing. It was awesome. Like, I, I don't remember what movie I was watching, but we saw like a, a trailer for John Wick before the movie started, right? In the theater. And I remember the people I was with, we had this brief conversation. It's like, oh, is this, is this going to be like, is this what Keanu does now? Is he does like these 47 Ronin-esque like Kung Fu shoehorned action movies? And it turns out John Wick is not at all like that. Thank God. God, 47 Ronin was such a massive colossal piece of shit. Yeah. I really wanted to like it too, you know? I avoided that. I didn't, I never watched it. I avoided it. I think the death of that writer would have been an inciting factor no. for a lot of good things. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That movie's fucking terrible. It's not it's not the happening. Like it's watchable, but it's not good. No, I don't know, man. Maybe we'll do it as like a real drunk episode because it's it's fucking terrible. I think you're I think you're forgetting how terrible that movie was. Maybe I have Keanu colored glasses on. <laughs> Guys, what, what have we learned in this episode? I think we've learned that death is good and wonderful and great. <laughs> I think when, when it's used properly, because there are so many movies that cheaply use the like death of the family member, spouse, child, whatever, as like narrative momentum, and it's just bad. Just so not good. I'm proud of us for avoiding that largely in this discussion. Yeah, we've talked about the good examples, which is great. I love that. You need that. Go watch John Wick. Go watch Up if you feel like crying. Watch Iron Giant. The best example I think of like somebody that understood that you can't do it over and over again was in Star Wars. Because even George Lucas, for all of his narrative wish-wash here and there, he understood that after Obi-Wan in the OG Star Wars, he couldn't just make another mentor character to kick the bucket. But then he made Yoda, and then he kicked the bucket. <laughs> so... And then he made Qui-Gon, and then he kicked the bucket. Mentors dying is kind of how Star Wars progresses. Actually, that's kind of how the Jedi Order works, but I don't want to get into that. You know what's interesting is I'm going to have to come up with some term for these weird, wild connections that my brain makes. This might be a a habanero connection, is what I'm going to call this. So, I think that uh, there is a significant... Use of death connection to audience expectations between slasher movies and Rogue One. Because when you start a slasher movie, you know most of these people are going to die. But I'm here for the experience of getting to that point. Rogue One, you know these people are going to die, but I'm here for the experience of getting to that point. And it's excellent in both cases. God, that's why I think Cabin in the Woods is a character study. Like, who is the actual protagonist? Who is the fool? Because it's not who you think it is. You're not wrong. I think it is a spicy take, though. <laughs> it wasn't really telegraphed that everybody was going to die in the end of Rogue One, though. So, yeah, it was. Uh, no, not really. I was kind of... I don't watch trailers, and I knew everybody was going to die before I started that movie. Maybe I just had a, 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 a certain point of view going into Star Wars. <laughs> That's two goddammits from me. God damn it. <laughs> Rogue One is like the OG Ocean's Eleven, and people actually just take the <laughs> yeah, bucket. That's true. You know. Anyway. Yeah, no, instead of just like missing out on the big score and walking away from the casino all sad and downtrodden, they all got fucking blown up. They died. Yeah, they <laughs> fucking <laughs> die. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's and there's the video clip for social media. Well done, Alex. <laughs> When Goldblum inevitably kills one of us, how do you think it'll affect the other two in serious and profound ways and how they progress through their life from that point on? I have a prediction. Here's what I'm thinking. I think Goldblum is going to kill me for tinkering around in his, in his programming so much. The tracks, yes. And you guys, you guys will just assume that I'm off doing some weird deep space research or something. Also tracks, yes. And then like two years will go by and you'll be like, wait a minute. Wasn't there a third person here? I forgot. <laughs> Two years? Dude. 
You're giving us way too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's not give that motherfucker any ideas. Let's go to a commercial break or messages from Earth or whatever whatever I'm calling it in my death-addled brain right now. Commercials? What is this, 1994? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a commercial. It's an advert that's read by Alex. It results in some money, kind of. All right, I'll work on another one. Jeez. <laughs> Hi, I'm Warren. I know next to nothing about music or musical theater. Does this sound like you or somebody that you know? If so, tune in to Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse, every Wednesday, where my wife Kay, that's me, broadens my horizons and makes me less of an uncultured swine. Oh, Warren, you're not a swine. Thanks, Kay. Wait. Tune in every Wednesday to Tone Deaf. Guys, now that we're all sad and depressed and ready to throw ourselves out the airlock, what do you say we try and turn things around and bring this episode back full circle to some happy times, to some happy days? Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, that's what we call a segue, which I now know how to pronounce as muscle memory. We've got an awesome listener question. This one comes to us from John. And the question is, what is the all time best TV theme song? Uh, there's some criteria here, right? It's like, which theme song do you never skip when you're rewatching it? Let's set the bar at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because that's a dope fucking theme song. It's the best thing that Chuck Lorre ever did and fuck him for ruining his legacy by creating the Big Bang Theory. What a shit fucking filled TV show. But also a great theme song. I was going to say Big Bang Theory is, is, is heralded as one of the, the best recent theme songs. It is a pretty good theme song. I'll give them that. Isn't it done by Bare Naked Ladies? Wait. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's Friends. Like, you have to beat Friends. That's the one that you have to beat. Uh, I disagree. I disagree. The one that you have to beat is Cowboy Bebop. Oh, uh, That's okay. pretty fucking yeah, good. That... Tank is an all-timer for sure. Okay. For, okay. <laughs> Get your Friends theme song out of here. You guys remember that episode where we all sang it in fucking three-part harmony? I do. You guys just want to do that for the next five minutes and then call it a wrap? Okay. Yes, I do. I'm noticing a trend in my thought processes right now, and that is a lot of my favorite theme songs are anime. The Fully Cooly theme song by The Pillows is legitimately still in, in some of my Spotify playlists. It's phenomenal. Oh, I listen to the pillows on a regular basis. I don't love Fully Cooly. It, it, it escapes me in a way I can't really comprehend. It's a fucking weird show. <laughs> yeah. But the pillows, I was a fan of the pillows before I, I actually even saw the anime all the way through for the first time like a year ago. The pillows are fucking amazing. That is a great theme song. The Simpsons. Futurama is also great. Futurama is fucking dope. Absolutely. Yes. Guys, you're you're missing the, the, like, the ones that people talk about, though. Like, Game of Thrones. I was gonna mention Game of Thrones, yeah. but if you can hum it, you're already there. Like fully cool, you can't do that. You, you know, Power Rangers. Power Rangers is up there, but you could go into a karaoke bar and sing the opening to Friends, and people will clap along. I was really hoping he was gonna say Game of Thrones. <laughs> you could do it with Game of Thrones too, probably. I just want to see a motherfucker get up there and just do Game of Thrones acapella in, in a karaoke bar. You know, with our audience, like I'm thinking about Firefly and I'm thinking about the You Can't Take the Sky from Me. And I'm like, um yeah, that's my jam. That's one of my top favorites, but that's not what we're asking here. It's the best TV theme song. Maybe I just dislike the Friends theme song so much that like it's skewing my opinion here, but I do not think the French theme song is very good. It was okay and catchy for the early 90s. It was in and of its time. It's an all-timer just because it's just such a big part of the cultural zeitgeist and always will be, but it's not that great of a song on its own. Have you ever seen the full music video where they actually do the whole song and they've got the cast members like on stage with them and shit? It's not that great of a song without the context of the show. It's not. What about um, Steven Universe? Yeah, again, for the for the the context of the show, it's really good, and it's catchy, and I can sing all the words right now off the top of my head easily. But I don't know if it's like the best theme song ever. Hmm. 
I'm holding firm to Ninja Turtles, no joke. Like, what a cultural fucking phenomenon, honestly. It comes down to stings and things that you can remember and that are easily repeatable. A lot in order, SVU. People remember that shit. Bum, bum. Yeah. What's it? <laughs> dun, dun, da, da, da. Bum, bum. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you remember that, though. But if you walked into a crowded bar and there were a bunch of drunk people on a Friday night and you said, so no one told you life was going to be this way, you'd get at least 20 people to be like. That's the thing is like a lot of these cultural shows have like really catchy parts of theme songs. Like the clap in the Friends theme song is great. It's it is exactly like you described. It's very memorable. It's very easy to replicate. Everybody knows it, blah, blah, blah. But like. I barely even know the rest of that theme song. And it, I would definitely skip the intro if I ever watched Friends again. I think it has to do with the context of the show. It tries to be more dramatic than it is now. But like How I Met Your Mother is another one that people reference. And it's because of the context of the show. It's meant to make you reminisce. I have another candidate for you guys. What about... I want to be the, the very, very best. best. That's out there. It's not the very best that no song ever was it's catchy as shit can you go through tmnt for me why is it why is tmnt's theme song better than pokemon's it's got that fucking bam riff right at the beginning of it the lyrics are super fucking catchy it's rock and roll as shit it tells you everything you need to know about the show that before you even get into it and it's stuck in your brain for fucking ever every single one of us right now everybody listening off the top of their head, could probably sing every single lyric to that song in key. That is exactly what I was just going to say, is all of those points are why I think Pokemon is the winner, because I can't do that with TMNT. Yeah, I'm with Seth, actually. I can't even imagine it in my head right now. But that's I think that's just because I'm thinking of too many other songs. And Pokemon's theme starts with, as Jack Black would say, the Hawaii Five O roll. Okay, if I say... Da, 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 da. What would you guys do? Now <laughs> yeah. you're talking. Now you're on to something. <laughs> Maybe it's the Adams family. And I could sing that one like verbatim without thinking about it too. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. That that's is a very there. good one. You see, I think it comes down to this. It's call and response. Yeah. Show me a TV series that has Sweet Caroline as the intro, and I'll show you the winner of this contest. Maybe it's the fucking punk rocker in me, but I I rail against the idea that it's just a call and response that makes the best thing. No, it is. It is because it, it demands something of the listener. It's true. If you're watching it, you have to be engaged. Call and response is important for that. You're right. But that presupposes that response is the best possible outcome. It is. If you ask me, it is. It is. It absolutely is. Yeah. How? In what universe? In every universe. Because it keeps your listener engaged. That's why do you think MCs go out onto the stage and they say, how you doing, everybody, tonight? How you doing? And everybody's supposed to go, woo. <laughs> aye, aye, Captain. See? See, there's another one. <laughs> Call and response. There's a response. It's a listening. Yeah. I think top contenders so far. SpongeBob, Adam's Family, Friends. Call and response. Pokemon. Pokemon, because you have to sing along. <laughs> you have no... Best theme songs of all time. Pokemon. Cowboy Bebop, Futurama. Okay, so Tank from Cowboy Bebop does elicit that response because every time I put an episode on, I'm automatically humming the baseline. <laughs> the call and response part is what makes something popular, but the question was best theme song of all time, not most popular segment of a theme song. Okay, let's, let's think of a way to wrap this up and break it down, and we'll all do one singular choice. The criteria for the best TV theme song ever Alex says it's it's the eliciting the response. Seth says it has to be just a full-on fucking banger. And I think it's got to be something that has to do with the cultural zeitgeist that we just can't get rid of. Like, it's stuck in our head forever. And it's not something we're annoyed by when it gets stuck in our head either. It's something we enjoy randomly hearing in our heads. Also, a point that I am realizing right now is I have been operating under the uh, we need to come up with the best theme song that Space Castle is going to declare. And that's not... That's not it. We each have our own best theme yes. songs to, yeah. to say. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, well, this is one question where I'm, I'm sorry, John, we're never going to come up with a consensus here. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll continue to come up with really good ones because I'm sure I please chime in online and tell us your example because I'm looking forward to these. Seth just changed my mind and I'll answer the question first. 
since DT's teed it up so nicely. And I think Seth changed my mind. I think the best is the SpongeBob theme. That one's pretty good. It has to be because because it's perfect for the audience. It literally starts with, are you ready, kids? Are you already kids? Uh, yeah, and you're supposed to answer back. I think call and response is important. And I think it has to be thematically relevant. And I think that the tune has to match the, the theme and sort of gumption of the show. And SpongeBob does that on all fronts. Everything, every box is checked. I'll give SpongeBob the win. Would not be upset if we had to draw a consensus at SpongeBob. I'll put it that way. Mm, it's not going to happen, gentlemen. It's not my pick, but I would not be upset. That's my pick for right now. I'm looking forward to our listeners telling us on, on Twitter at Space Castle Pod what the right answer is. I am going to put forth Cowboy Bebop, man. I think that's the best theme song of all time. I'm going to be humming it after this for sure. <laughs> I subscribe to the notion that call and response is important if you want a thing to be popular. I do not subscribe that that's what makes it best. I'm all about the art, man. Best is is the best. Not necessarily the most popular. So, like, I think Cowboy Bebop is a better theme song than SpongeBob. Maybe not by much, but... Okay, but before DT answers, here's the thing. If we were to send a vinyl up to the aliens, as we've done before of the best TV theme song, we should send Cowboy Bebop, but we would send Spongebob. No, we would send some other bullshit like the Friends. fucking 90210 <laughs> theme song or some shit. <laughs> Saved be, by the Bell. It would be Law and Order SVU. Yeah. DT, what you got? I'm conflicted now. I was going to stick with Ninja Turtles, but now there's so many running through my brain now, like Happy Days and Batman in the animated series and... The problem is there's too many good theme songs. <laughs> Hats off to all those writers for coming up with those banger fucking themes. Uh, fuck. I don't know. I'm confused now. I'm conflicted. You got to pick one, friend. I don't think it's Cowboy Bebop, despite the fact that I fucking love it. I don't think it's that much of an all-timer, despite the fact that I adore it. Hmm. I, I don't know. It's cliche for me at this point, but I think I'm, I am going to stick with Ninja Turtles. Just because it's such a cultural phenomenon and everybody knows that song. Everybody knows it. You, cha you changed my opinion on the Adams Family, too. That would have been my second pick, actually. Adams Family is a very, very good one. Sure. Yeah. I mean, all those classic themes. I Dream of Genie, MASH, all those super, super classic theme songs. Even people who have never seen the show still know those theme songs, weirdly. In a lot of cases, those theme songs transcended the shows themselves. And those theme songs will be around forever, even when the shows are long forgotten by future generations wild now i'm getting all existential and sad like seth is <laughs> what about animaniacs Fuck. animaniacs uh, is yeah, very good, good but it's not an all-timer i think it's too specific yeah i mean everybody has their personal like scooby-doo for me will always be an all-timer but it's not the best yeah scooby-doo is an all fucking timer yeah damn yeah, Scooby-Doo is very good i'm noticing a trend towards cartoon shows right now there's a lot of, of really really good cartoon themes why is that so disproportional compared to live action? Because they got to hook kids. They got to. Kids are a tougher audience than people really give them credit for. Like adults, if it's a good show, it doesn't matter. Breaking Bad was one of the best TV series ever. Could you hum the theme song? I don't even, I couldn't even tell you that it had a theme exactly. song. Exactly. Yeah, it didn't need the theme song. But cartoons, they need that hook for the kids to sell them. Fucking Thundercats. God damn it. He-Man. Ghostbusters. Holy shit. It might be Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is pretty good. Oh. It's not as good as Pokemon or SpongeBob or Bebop. Fuck though, you. Man. Yes, it is. Yeah, oh it is. God, I'm, I'm with ET on dude. that one. Ghostbusters is up there. Don't get me wrong. It's, it is absolutely spectacular. <laughs> but you're going to say Ghostbusters is better than SpongeBob, dude? SpongeBob's theme song? Every day. Yeah. If I can tell my almost four-year-old who you're going to call and she says Ghostbusters, having no context of the show. That's not a theme song. That's a theme song. It's in yeah. a theme song. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. That's the, that's the chorus of the theme song. One, one phrase is not a theme song. She couldn't recite the theme song. I feel confident that she could go through the S SpongeBob theme song. Bring her in. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the things that, Alex, you and I are differing on here is like a portion of a theme song that's a call and response is not a theme song the intro to the the friends theme song ends at the clap <laughs> like people rarely continue past the clap because it's just that you have that portion 
and that's not a theme there's song. There's a terrible joke in there. I'm just gonna <laughs> yeah. The I'm, that's you notice how I just continued talking very quickly. <laughs> yes, it was a very very smart move. There is a portion, and it may not be you, Seth, but there is a portion of this population that gets a major dopamine hit whenever they get the claps right. There is a significant portion that get real hyped when they do it right. You will yeah. not catch me skipping the claps. Like I, I will be clapping alongside you for sure. <laughs> but that is not a theme song. Yeah. Okay. But we're just talking about best in a different frame of context. Here. <laughs> All right. We're gonna we're gonna ramble on this for the whole rest of the the podcast. Yeah. This is it, friend. Podcast <laughs> this is over. Is the we're rest done. of the podcast. We already did. Yeah. I do legitimately want people to let me know their favorite theme song because there's so many good esoteric. Like, I would not have remembered the Adams family, but I'm glad that I do now. So, like, there's lots of those. I want someone to reply to this on, on Twitter and, like, let me know about some dope-ass theme song that I'm forgetting about, you know? Or Good Pods. If you're listening on Good Pods, leave us a message at the, the comments down below. I don't know why I'm pointing down on my camera when people are only going to hear this. If you're listening to us on Good Pods, tell us in the comments for this episode what your favorite all-time TV theme is and why it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Or any of the better answers which have been said You know which podcast is the best theme song, though? It's definitely ours. And here, here comes a theme song right now. It's wonderful. I might agree with you there. Our theme song is very yeah, good. Yeah, the best is Deece Notes. Yeah, that's the song I would put on the, the CD and send up to the aliens would be Deez Notes for sure. Yes. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on Good Pods or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever player you happen to be listening to us on. Greatly appreciate it. If you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash pod. My name is DT and I'm going to go cry and then make myself feel better by listening to the Ninja Turtles theme song. I'm going to go listen to the Cowboy Bebop theme song because that makes me happy. Also, call us at uh, 970-591-3577. Leave us a voicemail because that would be awesome. I have been Alex, also known as Red Wine and Snatch Alex, part-time librarian, Winnebago thief, inverse Batman, king killer dude, centaur biologist, bison basher, master and space commander, dad joker sometimes, and a ta- taco cow herder, Molotov dog. And I'm Dead Seth, and I'm always thinking about my inevitable return to chemical equilibrium. Bye, I love you. <laughs> Damn. This shit's going to make all the true crime people cry even. (laughs) They cry anyway. Trust me, I know. (laughs) 